Welcome to episode 8 of the Film Mentories podcast. This is Jamie Benning speaking to you from South East London. This time I speak to Charles de Lauzarica. A bit of a hero of mine actually, given that he's one of the go-to guys for behind-the-scenes content. He worked with Ridley Scott for a number of years, including on Blade Runner, uh, The Final Cut, and the wonderful documentary he produced uh, called Dangerous Days. He's also very well known for his work on the Alien box sets. But he's also a director of his own stuff as well, including feature length and short films. I spoke to Charles a couple of weeks ago at the start of September 2020. We had a nice long conversation which went on for another hour actually after we stopped recording. It was a great opportunity to finally get to know him some more. I hope you enjoy the chat and I'll be back at the end for a bit more jabbering. So Charles, what, what drew you to making behind the scenes documentary? Was there a particular moment when you saw something and suddenly realized this is something I could do? Um, no, I never had a moment of, of like, wow, that is a really great piece of behind the scenes storytelling. And I want to do that. Um, I, I was a fan, certainly, uh, going back to the Criterion Laserdiscs and, uh, when I was at USC film school, there was um, a study center there that had a huge library of laser discs and, and whatnot, but also criterion discs. And it was sort of mind blowing to be able to go in and listen to commentaries and, and, you know, hear the filmmakers discuss their process and their thoughts behind their films. And that was very intriguing. And I was a big, big fan. And I learned a lot from those criterion discs, but I never wanted to, I never had the idea to, to do them. So it was kind of by accident that I fell into the behind the scenes content biz um and um you know it was really just because of being a fan of behind the scenes content and being an early adopter of dvd that i i happened to mention to ridley scott while i was working for his company that there's this new thing coming out that you should probably be getting interested in because it's going to be a higher quality presentation of your films than ever before and the added bonus of having supplemental content to explain you know what went into the making of the films and it's kind of like establishing sort of a video legacy uh, uh, for your filmmaking and the films you've made. And so you should get in on it. So basically that was sort of how I fell into it was just through the, through that conversation with Ridley and then what eventually became the first um, alien box set, the alien legacy box set, which I was his mm-hmm. super, supervisor on. So was there a point there when you went then, uh, when you kind of got the go ahead there that you went and dug into some of the, the stuff that was already present in terms of making of because making ofs have kind of evolved over the years, haven't they? Sometimes they, uh, you know, tell a pretty harrowing story. Sometimes they're purely promotional. And there is a kind of delicate balance, isn't there, of kind, kind of um, placating the, the director or the studio, but at the same time being able to tell something that's authentic. Um, are there any to you that kind of stand out from from you know before you got involved in this part of the industry yes absolutely there were there were probably two or three uh behind the scenes documentaries that i i was really impressed by by their by their candor by their uh the depth uh to which they sort of honestly explored the problems of of the making of the films because problem solving is such a huge part of filmmaking it's, it's almost entirely problem solving so um, certainly Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse is, mm-hmm. you know, the, the gold standard, I think, for that. Yeah. Um, I also really loved uh, The Hamster Factor, uh, The Making of Twelve Monkeys. I thought that was really mm-hmm. it, it was it was honest and, and showed kind of a, the warts and all. But it was fun, too. It was it was a very enjoyable look at the uh, Gilliam Circus. And, and then um, uh, Under Pressure, Making of the Abyss, which uh, I thought was excellent uh, and honest and really um, human because, you know, it showed people under great duress and how they dealt with it and then yet still produced a pretty incredible film. So those three, I think, were the, the ones that really captured what I was interested in as a viewer. And I tried to carry with me forward when I started making them, uh, making the making of documentaries. Yeah, those three. Yeah, the the Abyss one. I watched again recently and I was just reminded just of the endeavor and the commitment that it takes to make a movie of that magnitude, you know, to build that tank, to go through all of the difficulties they had in shooting that. It's um, it's a reminder to us all that this isn't an easy thing. You know, I think a lot of people see movie making and now in the culture of social media, instantly questions, why didn't they do it this way? Why didn't they do it that way? You know, intentions are one thing. Um, but people don't really always appreciate the effort that goes into these things. And I think that's 
one of the things that your films do so well is they they remind us of that and you know i do, do you find there's a kind of balance you have to strike between making a nice complete story um something that's digestible within you know a couple of hours or something like that but also at the same time wanting to do every department justice how do you find that balance well i you know i try to when it's a, a new movie that i'm on the set for i try to capture everything and bank it in case you know that story develops over the course of the production with the older films you just kind of have to rely on the stories that you're hearing from people and and then anything that seems to take root you develop more and more and more. So um, I, I approach both types of documentary filmmaking uh, journalistically. I kind of follow what's, mm-hmm. what are the interesting parts of the story? How is it evolving into a bigger story? And then what's kind of like the headline of it all? So basically, I, I just look at it in, in those terms. And it's, and it's been pretty, I don't want to say easy, but it's been, it's been pretty reliable uh, uh, a way to do it. Yeah, because as, as a documentarian on set, uh, like in the case of uh, Matchstick Men or Kingdom of Heaven, you were there, you're part of the crew, but you're also kind of separate from the crew as an, as an observer as well. Has there ever been a secret desire for things to go kind of pear-shaped so that you have a more, a more tasty documentary? Or do you see yourself, you know, very much there to serve the, the production and, you know, to help promote it as well? Uh, both and also um, just telling the true story of the making of that film. I do sometimes in the back of my head think, wow, this is a really fun shoot. People are having a good time. Everything's going very smoothly. It's going to be really hard to tell an interesting story later. But yeah. I can't, I'm not going to fake it. You know, I'm not going to create drama where none exists. And I've seen people do that. And it's, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's a way to go. Uh, it might make for a more interesting final product, but I don't think it's truthful or it doesn't serve the film's legacy in the long term. So, I don't, I don't try to invent drama where none exists mm-hmm. uh, by the same token. I don't shy away from it when it does present itself. It's like I definitely try to capture it. And then maybe, you know, throughout the course of editing the piece, it, it might be necessary to reframe it because the history of that story might have been reframed in, you know, afterwards. I mean, there's any number of influences that could tweak things uh, leading towards maybe a, a harder truth than you wanted to tell or a more lighter truth. And what actually mm-hmm. what actually happened? Yeah, I mean, you're very well known, of course, for your Blade Runner and your Alien box sets and being involved in the Blade Runner Final Cut and, and so on. But I think looking at your catalogue of stuff that you've done, I've re- revisited um, the Kingdom of Heaven stuff and the Matchstick Men stuff uh, in the last couple of weeks. And you, know, you talk about how you might be shooting something and it all seems to be going great. I mean, Matchstick Men is a kind of example of that, where it's still very, very interesting to watch, despite the fact that it looked like everyone got on really well. And, you know, everyone had a great time and there's lots of hugs. I think you, you even get a hug at the end of that one <laughs> from one of the writers. Yeah. Um, but it, it's still a compelling watch because I think what you always do for me as an audience member is you you take us to parts of the making of process that we aren't necessarily going to see on your average making of. You're there for the, the costume fitting. You're there even before that when they're talking about the writing and the story points and, you know, location. How much footage did you shoot on something like Matchstick Men? Because it looks to me like you must have had hundreds of hours. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't even tell you. Um, like, for instance, on Prometheus, I think we clocked in at about seven terabytes worth of footage on that. Uh, I don't uh-huh. know. I don't know what I had on Matchstick Men because I was shooting on tape. And mm. I just have boxes and boxes of little mini DV tapes that... And because it was like myself as a one-man band shooting that stuff, I would literally finish a tape, throw it in the bag, not even think about it until later. So later it became a process of like numbering the tapes and trying to figure out what all that was. But it was very guerrilla, very sort of like run and gun and just keep your fingers crossed. But uh, it was a lot. I mean, because I was every day I was there, I'd probably shoot, I would say anywhere between maybe four or five hours worth of footage every day that I was covering the production and pre-production. Sometimes it was even more because there are all these meetings that were happening with Ridley or the other you know department heads. And at the same time as Matchstick Man, Ridley was also preparing this big historical uh, epic called Tripoli, which kind of mm-hmm. sort of semi morphed into Kingdom of Heaven with a lot of the same people. But so it was like double duty because it was Matchstick Man. And then you'd follow Ridley into another room and it'd be Tripoli. And then you'd follow him into another room and be back to Matchstick Men. So, yeah, there was tons of footage for, for both. 
How do you deal with the the problem, I guess it's a problem, on set of trying to remain as invisible as possible? Because I'm sure it's very easy to get in the way to affect an actor's performance or any technician's uh, job right there. What have you learned over the years and what are your techniques in sort of staying out of the way but still managing to capture those key moments? Because you really do capture those key moments, you know, those first shots, those last shots, the big, uh, the big problems and, and everything else. Well, I mean, you kind of have to gauge it minute by minute to be honest because everyone's mood changes minute to minute um mm -hmm. and it's like the same way a director deals with actors it's like you may think you have an actor figured out then they might throw you throw you a curveball one day and you were not prepared for it so i i just try to be as invisible as i possibly can but also gain the trust of as many people as i can by trying to capture again sort of an honest take on what they're doing not becoming like their their pal to the point where they're starting to talk to me and they're starting to like be very inclusive of the camera because then I think it starts to get a little little fake again. again. Sure. Uh, with with the exception of something like like you point out as the end of, at the end of Magic Man when everyone was kind of happy at the wrap and Ted Griffin pulled me in for the hug with the cameras like that was that was fun because everyone had a good time on that one. There were, there were all kinds of problems on Magic Man, but they were of the very much logistical procedural types, not personalities, mm -hmm. not studio dramas, none of that. It was basically like Ridley was shooting so fast, the crew had to catch up with him and kind of keep that uh -huh. really fast pace going. So that's a, that's not, it's not a problem in, you know, like a serious way, but it's, it is a challenge that they have to meet. So those are the types of things that were fun to document. And, and the energy of that crew is so high and so up mm. because so many of them had been previously on a, on a much bigger, uh, more difficult headache inducing film right which i probably shouldn't mention but with, <laughs> with another filmmaker but um they're you know they were all coming off of big shows and uh, they wanted a little i don't want to say vacation but a little bit of a lighter experience and matchstick event provided that it was it was all pretty much in the valley in la it was all it was all kind of very unexotic <laughs> and it was very yeah. just sort of yeah. like you get out of bed you go have fun during the day you go back home you know it was like it was it was a very mellow low-key shoot but yeah. again with a lot of enthusiasm yeah you really captured that and what i liked about that particular documentary is that you capture that there's this constant state of flux in the in the production you know from the pre-production to the production itself all the way through to post-production where you have an interview with the editor talking about taking a glance between two characters away suddenly changes the tone of the in entire thing. And I think, again, that's what I love about your stuff is it really reveals that part of the process really well because, you know, so many people just assume that people set out to make something and that's all they do. They just set out to make this thing they've already decided on. But of course, as we know, it's uh, something that changes, as you say, minute by minute. And you were there for what seemingly the whole process. Did you have anybody else shoot camera on that? Or was it just you? There was a, an EPK uh, camera right, guy yeah. on that, uh, Jack Kanaya. And um, he was shooting with the agenda of what an EPK shooter does, which is to give the studio material to cut mm -hmm. together to promote the film, but also document it. Um, mm -hmm. So, and, and, I, and I had to stay out of Jack's way because he was, you know, again, he was repping the studio. I was more aligned with Ridley. So I tried to, I tried to stay out of his way, even though I, I failed quite a few times because I got, I got chewed out once or twice for, for getting into his shot and for blocking what he needed to get. <laughs> it turned out, you know, pretty well uh, in terms of me covering everything I needed to cover to make my own kind of like, you know, lo-fi, nuts and bolts, gritty. When I say gritty, I don't mean like mean gritty. I just mean, yeah, you know, just, just again, kind of, kind of, kind of like very low budget version of what Jack was doing for the studio. So yeah, it, it was, it was, it was good because it was having two different flavors of behind the scenes material being captured provided a wealth afterwards because if I needed anything yeah. of Jack's EBK stuff, I could use it. I didn't really, except for some interview pieces, some audio sound bites, mm -hmm. but I hate that it, I look at it now and I hate that it's shot in standard def and I hate that it's so like low <laughs> res and so like yeah really gritty and gunky and ugh. but uh but it but it's honest and it has heart you know and I, I appreciate that yeah it does really feel very honest and I think despite the the format that you shot on it it sort of reminds us of that time you know it's, it, the technology kind of reveals the era in, in which it was done and then you move on to something like kingdom of heaven which is a ridley scott film kind of as we know it a little bit more maybe than matchstick men where you've got these enormous set pieces these enormous sets i watched that film for the first time uh, shortly after its release in its original form and things that i assumed were cg i found out after watching your stuff um, were not, you know, those sets were absolutely enormous. And again, your stuff is reminding us that 
we need a combination of these of different film techniques that have been developed through the ages to kind of achieve what needs to be achieved. And Ridley, of course, is a master at deciding on uh, which one is going to serve him him best at that moment. Do you feel any kind of responsibility to move with the technology as well in in the stuff that you do? Is there a format that you would choose to shoot on? Is it based purely on budget for that mo- for that movie's documentary, or is it something that you kind of push for? You mean specifically on Kingdom of Heaven, or in general? Just in general, but on Kingdom of Heaven, I mean, you know, the the it's obviously uh, there's a there's less of a rawness to the to the footage that you're shooting. I yeah. guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, no, totally. I, you you kind of have to scale up or scale down depending on what the film is. And because Kingdom of Heaven was a massive, big budget studio epic, uh, I couldn't go in with my little Sony, whatever it was, my little tangled you know prosumer camera like I did on Matchstick Man. I had to you know. Mm raise the the game a bit but um on that one the studio definitely had an epk presence you know separate from my own which again i benefited off of on the the dvd side when we started putting together content Mm -hmm. because i could take from my footage that i shot which got me in closer and tighter to the action because i had already embedded myself amongst a lot of the, the crew and they knew me from previous projects so that was great but for the big kind of the scope scopey shots, you know, I could rely on EPK crew for that. So um, mm-hmm. that that's kind of like, like like a an all hands on deck situation where you just take the footage wherever you can get it, and then you sculpt it into something that hopefully is coherent. Um, yeah. And and having again having shot so much of the sort of like director's point of view on that one, um, that provided the the video foundation i think of what the what the story was and then we can pull from pull from other sources for the rest of it including not just behind the scenes footage or epk footage but outtakes raw dailies uh video tests i mean just things that were still illustrating the story being told but they came from random sources yeah and you you still remain you know despite the fact that it's a huge scale movie and you know maybe you had a bit more scope to shoot more things it still has that intimate feel which i think your work always brings whether it's something where you've been on set or whether it's an archival project that you've kind of dug into is there anything from the kind of era of Blade Runner and Alien that still hasn't had its uh, making of story told maybe you don't want to say it because you might be having some ideas already or, or working on something already but the, the thing is with your stuff is what I'm getting at I guess is that you've you've done the definitive box sets the definitive making ofs do you still think that something will appear something will be uncovered that you know you might want to dig into i mean for older films that i grew up with and i I love yeah certainly there's 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 quite a few it's just that they've already been done uh and well enough that there's really no clear need to do it again other than out of my own ego wanting to like just do it like the way i would do it you know um but i can't just say oh well let's just erase that from existence and I'll just do a whole new one because that's not fair to anybody. Uh, first of all, mm-hmm. one, secondly, again, it's all based on ego. And and third, it's like that story has been told in some form, probably, you know, well enough or detailed enough that I'm not sure what I could bring to it other than maybe slightly more of the types of things I like in honest filmmaking stories. Um, that's, that's kind of all I can say really, because, uh, I just, I just don't know if there's the interest beyond us core fans and aficionados yeah. of these filmmakers and these films. Um, and I don't know if that's enough for the studio to finance such an endeavor of to, you know, like to go back into these older films, dig up all the materials, try to get not just the archival interviews, but shoot new interviews with the people that are still mm-hmm. with us. Uh, it's a it's a daunting task, even even if it is some huge, big, beloved franchise movie or something, you know, it, it is. Yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of archival work and, and archaeological work, really, to to do all this. And I just don't know if they're going to if the people paying for it are going to think it's worth it. I had a chat with some of the folks uh, at a particular studio recently where they were kind of talking about that very issue about digging into old stuff and trying to find the budgets for it and the budgets are not there. Do you think that kind of uh, making of documentary materials has had its heyday with DVD and Blu-ray? And I'll add a little other question on top of that or a little statement on top of that, because I still think that with streaming, it almost is the ideal platform to release some of the stuff that's already out there, but also maybe to try and dig into the archives and create some create some new stories. I know there are things like the movies that made us, but I'm not a huge fan of their kind of uh, 
their flippant approach to things, you know, which is uh, always approached as comedic, whether it's a comedy they're talking about or not. I still think there's there's room for a slightly more serious, in-depth, deep dive in, into some of the movies. So do you think streaming could be could see a resurgence of this kind of stuff? Well, I think we're starting to see a little sneak peek at what maybe the future is with streaming and uh, additional content. Uh, for instance, on Disney Plus, you know, they'll, they'll have many of their big films and then they have the extras section. And some mm-hmm. sometimes you get lucky. There's like like in the case of Rise of Skywalker, you have the full Skywalker legacy documentary, which is a that's no that's no small piece of content. That's a pretty epic piece. Yeah. Just drop mm-hmm. into a sub menu, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and then there's deleted scenes, often with commentary. Uh, that's great. And uh, and then in a different way, they are, Disney Plus is also getting into the behind the scenes business, I think, in a big way with the Mandalorian uh, making of uh, the, mm, the, gal- mm. the gallery series that they did. Now, that is interesting to me because it's giving you a, a fair look at the behind the scenes of the Mandalorian, but it's done in, in a more mainstream friendly way than I think what mm-hmm. we're used to with, again, going back to Criterion, which is more kind of, you know, scholar- yeah. scholarly, you know, and then what mm-hmm. we've seen sort of in the, uh, the late 90s and aughts of a bit more, uh, in-depth and long-form making of documentaries that get really, really geeky and, and detailed, uh, but may not be for everybody. You know, I think people during the DVD era enjoyed buying those discs because it seemed like this added value of, oh, I'm not just getting the movie, but I'm getting, I'm getting hours and hours of content all for 20 bucks, you know, and I can mm-hmm. put, that, put that on my shelf and build a library. Like there was, like, that was a fun thing for a while, but I think that's gone. So mm-hmm. with the, the Mandalorian making of uh, series, is interesting because it's more mainstream and it's more entertaining for lack of a better term. Cause it's, I mean, it's entertaining, but it's also informative. A couple of the episodes I found to be very informative, but it's definitely, mm-hmm. it's a friendlier approach to it. Yes. So I think we might be yeah. seeing more of that perhaps, uh, which it, you know, so long as it gets people interested in the process, that's, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, it may not be as deep as we like, or as, as detailed as we like, but I think it's, it's, it's certainly better than nothing, but it's also so handsomely produced I'll take it, you know, and, and, and I'll find things to enjoy. Uh, episode four of the Mandalorian making of series was fantastic. The technology episode that was talking yes. about the, the volume and just shooting in that space. And that was mind blowing because of, first of all, how it was done, how beautifully executed it was, how it's a big next step, I think, and how world building filmmaking is going to go. And the fact that they mm-hmm. shared that with us, they shared it with us pretty openly, like how they did it and seeing, taking a step back to watch that process happen was beautiful. So I really, really enjoyed that one. Yeah, me too. I thought that was excellent. I, I found a couple of the episodes a little bit surface, you know, like everybody kind of was happy with what they'd done and they didn't really talk about the the difficulties and the, but it, it did improve a bit after that. I, that that Rise of Skywalker documentary, you know, I, I found it quite tantalizing that the, the filmmaker had to delve through 350 hours of behind the scenes footage in the Lucasfilm archives. And it certainly feels to me like there is potentially still stories to tell within that universe. You know, I'm somebody like yourself, who's been a lover of, of Star Wars for, for most of their life. And I'm constantly trying to, to find new things that interest me. And I've interviewed, you know, Paul Hirsch recently, who edited the first two, obviously, and I interviewed the guys that were inside Jabba. And, you know, I'm only going to get those out to a, those stories out to a small audience how do you feel about behind the scenes documentaries that that deal with maybe just one person involved in that process because i feel that you know there's almost like a series of unsung heroes maybe out there where we could really delve into what it takes to be a producer or an editor maybe in in the same way that say the roger deakins podcast is doing but maybe in a visual form do you still find those stories interesting of course um and you know, I think we see a lot of that with the um, Shout Factory Arrow type releases where they'll have a, a full bullet point to one direct, you know, dedicated to one person. Mm-hmm. And um, and I know why that is. The reality of the situation is they just don't have the budgets to like do a full form documentary that intercuts 20, yes. 30, 50 people. So they just mm-hmm. do a sit down interview, which Criterion used to do, or probably still does as well, where it's one conversation with one person and it's kind of, you cut the the interviewer out, put in some clips, put in some some, some stills, and it's a pretty straightforward mm-hmm. process and you can turn mm-hmm. it around quickly, cheaply. So that I get why that's we're seeing more and more of that, but so long as you pick the right people and they have the right stories, 
again, cool. I'll take it. Yeah. It's, it's great. Yeah. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I love those to be honest. I just don't know, like, like you said, what the audience is, what the bigger audience is for yeah. that. It might just mm-hmm. be this handful of, you know, film nerds that just really enjoy that stuff. Yeah. 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 You don't just create uh, behind the scenes stuff though, do you Charles? You, you also have made short films and a feature length film. What, what are your plans uh, on that side of things? Have you got plans for, for more features? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that's always been the plan. Uh, it's just mm-hmm. not, it's just easier said than done. Yes. And um, so I've had a couple, you know, nibbles at that apple and uh, hopefully get to do more and more of it. I mean, I have, you know, other projects, scripts, uh, previs. I've done like all of these different types of approaches to getting another feature going after my first one, Crave. It's And it's interesting because since I made Crave, the business has changed so many different ways, so many different different times. And now the world has changed entirely. Yes. Yeah, and, yeah. And, the, and the business is still trying to catch up with what is the new business? What is the new world that we're dealing with? So, you know, it's hard to plan. So you just, I think you just need to have something ready to go. So when that opportunity hits, you just strike really quick and fast and get it going. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to like get like three or four projects of varying budget, you know, tiers uh, together and ready to go. And I think I'm pretty much there and I'm talking to people to see what can we do once things kind of get more normal. Some of the projects are now intentionally being rethought for a pandemic production you know, situation, you know, of like mm-hmm. smaller crew, isolated, whatnot. So yes, the answer to your question is yes, I definitely want to do more narrative storytelling, but I also have to pay the bills. So, you know, we'll, we'll yeah. see, we'll see how that balances out in the future. Again, it's a huge question mark. I think we're all dealing with right now. Yeah, I've spoken to a few people in the kind of creative world about the the pandemic and whether it was, you know, kind of played into their hands in, in giving them some space and time to be creative. And I'm really interested in what's going to come out of this period. Is it going to be post-apocalyptic movies? Is it going to be romantic comedies again? Who knows what it might be? But have you found the situation in lockdown a chance to kind of reset and rethink and look over some projects that maybe otherwise would have gone by the by a little bit in, in terms of just thinking about again what what sh- what could i have ready given the opportunity and I, I think back to things that i've fully developed half developed barely developed i think about the new things that i'm working on and i just try to keep those all in the same wheelhouse so that if someone says hey we're looking for project x and i've got it boom let's talk about it you know um, right now, because of pandemic and lockdown and everything, I do feel like a lot of creative people, including myself, are maybe not functioning at 100 <laughs> percent because we're we're all a little bit stressed out. Mm-hmm. And creative people, I, I don't I don't think creative people like to be stressed out, even though I think they benefit greatly from being stressed out because it really brings out some serious stuff. You know, mm-hmm. um, I I've been torn between those two worlds of having the time to do it, having the the space to do it. But then thinking about, oh, my God, is the world going to end tomorrow? You know, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and what, yeah. what, what are we even doing? You know, so it's a, it's a lot. It's a it's a big mess right now. And I'm, and I'm just trying to, yeah. like, carve out the most clean, simple way forward. So right now I'm just focusing on, on writing as best I can. And, uh, and again, talking to other filmmakers, other friends and just say, hey, what can we do? And without without having a hard and fixed plan, because I think if you have that, <clears throat> you run the risk of investing a lot of time and effort in something that can easily flip upside yeah. down as we've seen with our own normal lives yeah yeah i mean i'm back to work now i've been working on uh, my sort of bread and butter work that i've been doing for the last 20 years which is to be a uh, one of the directors on the formula one tv production so motorsport and you know i have these kind of four days of craziness where i'm thinking on my feet and ready to react to things that are changing second by second and then i get home and i have to shift to a completely different gear and during the the, the the lockdown here in the UK, I found it really difficult to allow my mind to kind of wander because of the impending doom, as it were. And it's a very, um, very interesting place and time to find ourselves as creative people because it's, I don't know, just being indoors that much, I don't think is good for the, for the soul. I mean, luckily we had the weather on our side here in the UK, but goodness knows what's gonna happen uh, when the winter hits. Well, I mean, so much of storytelling is based on human interaction and and, yeah. and and learning from other people's mistakes or their quirks or whatever. And and because it's been mostly taken away in terms of our normal interactions that we, what we used to have, 
it is, it's, it's kind of weird. It's almost like you have to relearn how to be a human again. Um, because I, mm. at, least, at least that's where I felt like every time now, if I happen to go out and I just happen to like have to talk to somebody, uh, and we're masked up and everything, um, it, it, I, I, I have to almost default to some sort of really basic communication, which, which I don't normally do. I like to be a little bit more, I don't know, mm-hmm. playful or friendly or odd and, yeah. and, and having to kind of default back to my original programming of yes, no, how can I help you? You know, I'm like a robot, you know, and, I just, <laughs> and, th- and that, that I don't like, but it's how I'm getting through the day now. Yeah. Yeah. I do wonder how I've got a young, a young daughter. I've got three girls, but my youngest is five and she's, these, these should be the years where she's learning all of that stuff. And yeah, it's going to be an interesting uh, impact for, for, for many decades to come. You've interviewed some huge names. How do you kind of tackle the nervousness of interviewing somebody that you've kind of, I think, you know, like in, in the example of Harrison Ford, somebody you've been watching all your life, he's in the film that you love the most and are now associated with the most. Um, how do you kind of deal with any nervousness you might have around that person? What do you, what do you think that you bring that enables that person to, to relax and to, to give you a, a good interview? I think it's fair to say that Harrison Ford is the only time I've ever been starstruck during an interview mm-hmm. where he's sitting across from me, you know, he's like four feet away. And I, and I'm like, there he is. <laughs> there's, there's the, <laughs> the guy I grew up with as my, you know, movie hero, uh, in, across multiple roles and multiple films. And, and, uh, and also he's just, you know, a very impressive person just, you know, to have sitting across from you. So, um, mm. I got through that one by asking, and we had, a, it was like a very early, almost like softball warm up question that he then ran with for quite a while, which was regarding the voiceover in Blade Runner and mm. the whole process of recording the voiceover multiple times. And I just sat there because I was not expecting a very, I, I didn't expect any lengthy answers out of him. I thought that'd be pretty, mm-hmm. you know, cut and dried. And he ran with it and he was gesticulating and he was just having a lot of fun telling the story, which shocked me mm-hmm. that he was having fun talking about Blade Runner. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and so I, I was literally just like slack jawed, just staring at him. Like, <laughs> like, I cannot believe this is happening. I'm just like freaking out on the inside. And then when he was finishing the story about the voiceover, all I could muster was cool. <laughs> and, and, and then he said, no, it wasn't cool. It was terrible. And, and that woke, that woke me up when he said, no, it wasn't cool. I mean, again, he did it with a good natured tone, but yeah, it, woke, yeah. it woke me up thinking, okay, I can't just be fanboy. I have to, I have a job to do. So that's the only time I, I really felt like I had to reset during an interview to like think, okay, I, I, I'm a professional. I have to do this job. I can't allow my love of the person I'm talking to override any of that. So with other, you know, big actors or filmmakers or whatever, it's the only kind of like, not dread exactly, but like anxiousness that I have before immediately before the interview is just waiting for them to show up and then getting them in the yeah. seat, getting them mic'd up as quick as possible, last looks, make sure they look good, all that stuff. I, sometimes it depends on who the studio is and what they need. But when it's just me doing my thing, I usually just have very broad bullet points of topics. Yeah. And then I have mm-hmm. a conversation with them. And then it, it sometimes it might develop into different paths and different kind of like backstories and side stories that I wasn't expecting to go into. Um, and and then and then it all works out beautifully because we we got what I needed, but we got a whole bunch more, you know, along with that. Uh-huh. Versus when I have a very set set of questions that I have to get for the studio, which is again, it's fine. It's just a different language to speak, basically. And um, and yeah, but once I'm in that zone, I I don't really even think about what an amazing person I'm sitting across from because I ha- I ha- I have to get this done. You, you know? have a job to do. I have yeah. a job to do. And and afterwards, if, if there's time for chit chat. It's great. I mean, one time uh, for uh, Tony Scott's movie Revenge, I had to go up with my crew to Santa Barbara, which is a couple hours north of L.A., and interview Kevin Costner at his beach house. And it just happened to be the day after his birthday. And we went in and the house was just like filled with like balloons and party favors. It was just like, you know, a a big (laughs) birthday party had happened. And he was he showed up like barely together. And he said, I just need a few minutes. And we said, great. And we set up and then he came out like a professional, like a total movie Uh star pro. And that was one of my favorite interviews I've ever done, uh, actually, with Costner, because he was brutally honest, but in a, again, in a positive way, you know, not tearing anybody mm-hmm. down, just like saying th- this is like kind of the, the the challenges that we had to face. These, these are the challenges we had to face. And and afterwards, we probably talked when we were done shooting and, and the crew is striking the gear. We probably talked for another like 
30, 45 minutes just about movies and just about like director. Mm. We talk about director's cuts because I, I brought along my Dances with Wolves director's cut DVD for him to sign. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and it was great. And we, and we started talking about director's cuts and, uh, and, and Ridley and Tony's director's cuts and things like that. So that was a, I, I wish we had shot it, but we had already like struck the gear at that point. But um, sometimes like that's that's a bonus you get is like the person you're interviewing wants to keep talking off camera. And, and I yeah. love that. Yeah. I guess one advantage in a way is when you're interviewing them just after they've shot something, maybe before they're doing the promotional tour is you're getting their kind of first run at telling the story, which, you know, by the time they the film comes out, they probably told a thousand times and they're quite pissed off about telling that story for the thousandth time. So in a way, you're getting kind of that first raw performance, like a like a stand up comedian would refine their performance over time. I guess they're doing something similar. So I guess that's that's one advantage with with actors, especially doing interviews. You want to get in either really early or really late. You don't want to get in when they're doing the press junkets. Like that's when they're in total mm. like blurbo mat. You know, I'm telling you what you need to hear. I'm telling you what you want for your 30 second piece. Uh, either get them first, like while they're still shooting, which again that's t- difficult because they're often in the role. And they don't want to. They don't even know what the movie's going to be yet. They're still in the midst of it. Or like in the case of Kingdom of Heaven, I got to do another round of interviews you know, months after the release. So they, they could reflect upon what the film was or how it was received. And, and so, um, yeah, you never want to be in that press junket zone. Like that's the worst time to interview an actor. Yeah. I, 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 when I made my Inside Jaws filmumentary, I was kind of struck by a clip I found of Richard Dreyfuss talking shortly after shooting Jaws saying he'd made a mistake and the film's great, but I made a mistake. My performance was terrible. And then I like that kind of look back, you know, 30, 40 years later where they've reframed it because of the success. So I think, you know, these things are are interesting to, to, to revisit. And I guess part of your challenge in doing an interview that is relating to an archival project is trying to, to find something new and bring a, bring a freshness to, to that. Do you do you tend to interview people just cold, or do you send? The, do some of them want questions beforehand? Uh, it's case by case. Um, yeah, yeah. Usually, usually on the new projects, they want the questions ahead of time because I, th- I think they've seen mm. enough of these to know that they need to be prepared and they need to know they need to have like some great anecdotes lined up, you know, or or something that they just can't go in cold. I mean. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like in the last few jobs I've done um, where I've had to give the interview, interview questions ahead of time, half of them said, yeah, I got it, but I didn't look at it. And that's fine because those are a little bit more honest and mm-hmm. fun interviews. And then the other half said, yeah, I've got, I got it. And then it's, it's very efficient. Like they've got the answers and they allow for follow ups because something might trigger a follow up question off off the sheet. And uh, and, and they go with it. It's fine. But um on the older films, it's rare that they've ever asked me for the questions. I feel like because they live the movie and it's in the background now and the pressure is off to promote it, they can be honest and just have an honest conversation. Mm. That's what I've liked about interviewing some of the people that I've talked to, like Robert Watts and Evo Powell recently. That, I mean, Evo's still involved in the, the film industry, but Robert retired a few years back and they, they talk with an honesty, but also with that ability to look back retrospectively and realize what they did was pretty damn cool actually you know at the time they might have just been doing their job but now they have this kind of legacy robert talked about how he's kind of excited that his grandchildren have got this grandfather that did all these cool cool movies and i think that's great you've obviously been involved in restorations and director's cuts and things like that what do you feel about the need to release all of the versions of that movie that exist. Because with Blade Runner, of course, that was the case. The work print was in there, the original cut with the voiceover. And then, of course, the one that you worked on, um, the final cut, which is the kind of definitive go-to version. How do you see, where does the director fit into this? Is it is it their film? Is Should it should it be released in every format so people can see the development of that film over the years? What's your view on that? Well, it, it, for the most part, it, dep- it depends on the filmmaker and the film's history because mm. every film has multiple versions that we just don't get to see you know i i just i always cringe when i see these interviews with people who say oh the first the first cut of the film is four hours long and then there's like this tidal wave of fans out there saying release the four-hour cut and uh and it's like no you don't want to see the four-hour cut i mean maybe some of them do but it's like a four-hour cut generally is an assembly right it's just mm-hmm. it's just all it's all the major like circle takes or shots strung out in chronological form 
That's pretty much mm-hmm. it. There's like you, no, there's no you don't idea. know what you're taking out yet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and and the purpose of an assembly cut is for the filmmaker to see what they've got. It's like, okay, did we did we get that scene? Did we get that mm-hmm. hour of the film? Whatever. And what do we have to reshoot? What do we have to rethink? What you know? Mm-hmm. And, and hopefully get this assembly while the film is still being made, because then you can spend the last few days, you know, fixing things. Mm-hmm. That's the point of the assembly cut. So, so whenever I hear that, I kind of like get freaked out by yeah. people wanting that <laughs> cut. Uh, so in the case of Blade Runner, it was interesting just because the film itself was released in so many different forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were basically five versions uh, that were actually publicly, officially released in some way. So I, I feel like if it was officially released, if people paid to see it, then we should include it. Like that was my, that was my rationale on Blade Runner, because you could argue there's probably like a few other versions, you know, intermediate edits of things that could have gone in. Yeah. But then you've got other examples where you really only need the original cut and the director's cut. And I do think that if you do do a director's cut, you should still provide the original cut for people to to see not just the evolution, but because that's perhaps the film they fell in love with and they may not like the director's cut. But if you give yeah. them both, then everybody's happy. Yeah. My, my point is to try to make everybody happy. <laughs> and and so, some people say that's impossible. And I, and I always say, you can come close. You can make most people happy if you, if you give them the, the basic elements that they are familiar with. Yeah. I mean, there's a film that I'm sure we've both got in mind uh, <laughs> in regards to this. <laughs> um, and uh, having spoken to the editor of that film recently, yeah. you know, he was talking about how there's um he doesn't have any problems with any of the things that were kind of missed out but he has problems with things being put back in no it is a shame that 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 movie in particular though won oscars for things like effects and some of those effects are are kind of now missing forevermore and and, and best editing right absolutely so it's it's historical and it's also i think it's it's educational to see the original versions of films you know before the Mm -hmm. the high-tech polish comes in later and and you could argue that maybe some of that polishing is lesser than what they had originally you know and and i mm. it's not for me to say um but why not just give people the option and then they can choose yeah. you know because if the filmmaker has agreed to release a version and then another version and another version they had, at some point were fine with that going out like if they didn't mm-hmm. want it to go out they could have done what they had to do to not have it go out in that particular form so the fact that they allowed it to go out indicates to me that, okay, well, you're not that embarrassed by it. You know, you may wish you could have done better and maybe you have done better, better in your new version, but, but don't be embarrassed by the old version because hundreds of millions of people saw it. You know, it's like they saw your dirty laundry, you know, they saw it. So, so, so why hide it anymore? Yeah. I think, um, some, uh, some directors with the new sort of digital tools in restoration and colorization and, and effects kind of get, you know, seduced by these tools. And I was listening to a podcast the other day where they're talking about restorations and how directors come in and they don't necessarily want it restored back to how it was at the time. They're like, well, actually, I would have done this had I had the tools at the time. And there's a really sort of fine balance, isn't there? I suppose in some ways that, you know, the job that you do there, I always think there's a fine balance between, you know, demystifying the process, but at the same time, not taking the magic away. How do you see your responsibility with that? Because, you know, I can I can still watch a movie like Raiders or Blade Runner and still be caught up in, you know, the story and the, the emotion of it all. But at the same time, I can also watch it with that more kind of analytical eye knowing that, oh, that was a, you know, that was a take when the actor was drunk and that was a take when he was sober in the case of Jaws or something like that. But I don't necessarily think about it at the time if I'm fully invested in the movie. What do you see your responsibility as with regards to that? Well, my feeling is to not uh, kick people out of the movie, basically. Don't put anything in uh, that would take them out of the movie. And then also don't reveal anything that maybe that would ruin it for them. But you have to also factor in if they want to see how that was done mm-hmm. or which actor was drunk or whatever, they are choosing. <laughs> They're choosing to mm-hmm. learn that story the same way if a kid wants to grow up to be a magician, they're going to ruin the magic because they're going to learn the tricks. Mm-hmm. They're going to come up with their own tricks at some point. And hopefully they'll also appreciate the artistry of the magic, right? They'll, they'll appreciate the showmanship that goes into it. So I'm not too concerned about hiding things. It all depends on the filmmaker. If the filmmaker wants to keep something magical or secret, then certainly we can tiptoe around that. But I think if you're, if the filmmaker is fine with it, giving away the secrets, 
the person who clicks play on that making of or that visual effects breakdown or whatever it is that you have on the disc, mm. they're, cho- they're choosing to do that. So I feel I feel like, well, if you want to know, then we should tell you the best way and as much in as much detail as we can mm. uh, so that you learn. And then maybe you do it yourself and you can build and grow off of that knowledge. Mm. But when it comes to like, you know, like Blade Runner in terms of the visual effects and like the color timing, you're talking about the grading mm-hmm. is sort of like, well, the final cut should be whatever Ridley wants it to be in 2007. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because he could say, well, I really wish I could have done this or I would have done that. But when it came to the archival versions that we included, those were kept pretty traditionally as they always mm-hmm. were. So the, the purists out there could get their old school version and then the filmmaker could get his def, you know, definitive version. And then again, hopefully most people are happy. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of initially turned on to the making of movies when I saw those early Star Wars, making of Star Wars and the from Star Wars to Jedi, the making of a saga. And it was the first time I thought, hang on, wait, these are made? Like, I thought these just appeared magically <laughs> in front of me in the cinema. Yeah. Um, and I think what your documentaries do is inspire filmmakers because you show the process, you reveal the process. But as, as I said, you don't take that magic away. And I just want to take this opportunity. I know we've kind of chatted on Twitter and, mm. and, and other uh, social media for a number of years, but I just wanted to thank you for your for your work and for what you've done and, and, and the interest that it's given me uh, in those films and a new love for those films in many cases. You know, like with Blade Runner, I kind of thought I was done. With Aliens, I thought I was done. Um, but you pulled me straight back in and made me want to watch those movies with a whole new level of appreciation. So that's something that that your kind of work does for people. And I think sometimes that isn't necessarily recognized. So yeah, big thank you well, on that one. Well, no, thank you for saying so. And, and thank you for your filmmentaries because I, I love watching what you do because it's almost like it's not like a, a greatest hits album but it is sort of like you're taking the best <laughs> things that you have found out in the universe and brought it mm-hmm. into one one place and and i really appreciate that and then it's also like a multimedia commentary along with the film itself you know like that's great i, I can't remember what year it was but there was a time when budgets on dvd extras were starting to like polarize like the big ones got really big budgets and the little ones got tiny budgets and i was trying to mm-hmm. find a new a new middle way forward and i was thinking about doing something similar to what you, what you were doing, which was sort of like a, a video commentary that goes with the film. But we, mm-hmm. we, what I couldn't do is what, what, what you do is create just one solid, you know, piece of informational yeah. content. I, I don't mm-hmm. have this, I don't have the space on a disc to get all that in along with the film itself. So what mm-hmm. I did, I did on certain things like on um, a good year and uh, the counselor and deja vu mm-hmm. was, was create video pods like chunks that would then seamlessly branch in and out of the films, you know, so that you, you couldn't yeah. tell that you had left the film. You didn't have to press a button. It just mm-hmm. took you to behind the scenes stuff, but then had the director of commentary, like kind of like link that. So you were always getting supplemental content, but the video portions would just kind of dip in and out as needed. So that was like my home video version of what you do, it just it couldn't it couldn't <laughs> hope to get anywhere as detailed as what you can do or show yeah. like d- deleted scenes and alternate takes and things like that. So I think uh, I think it's a really great process what you what you do in terms of like bringing in all the the best pieces to create just this feast of everything. You know, I, I love yeah. it. Thanks. I got a, a massive compliment from you once several years ago where you said you'd had a dream that you had to make the ultimate making of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And you woke up to realize that it had already been done by Jamie. So no, that was a, that was a huge compliment for me because I've been inspired by your work and by Laurent Bouzerou and all those guys that have made all those making of things. And to think that in some way I'm influencing what you're doing, that's, uh, that's uh, really good to know, very, very humbling. It's interesting what you say about the, the disc space issue because my chat with a couple of studios have, have cited that as their main reason for not kind of going down that route, not, not only the issue of clearing the rights for everything that I found, but also the just the, from an authoring point of view, which is why I asked that question about the streaming, because I wonder now if, you know, potentially there is more time. But anyway, is there anything you're working on now that you want to just uh, mention to the listeners? Well, right now I, I have a short film that I made called uh, Love Bite that I made with my wife, Carly Baker. And um, we shot this uh, a little over a year ago. And it's about a couple, uh, like a, a dysfunctional couple and their dog, uh, who are both from different political backgrounds arguing about how a deadly virus spreads during a pandemic. <laughs> and we shot this like a year and a half ago or like a, like a little over wow. a year ago. 
and it's actually uh, a fool. It's all, yeah, it's all <laughs> my fault. Um, but of course, we got it wrong because ours has zombies in it. So, in any case, that's playing at festivals most recently at Fright Fest uh, in the UK and Ireland, and then. I think our next one is going to be uh, North America wide, actually, will be at the NOLA uh, Horror Film Fest, which is based out of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're doing a, a North America wide live stream of it. So that'll be in September. So, yeah, we're doing we're just do festivals for a little bit longer and then hopefully find a home for it somewhere to stream. And then, uh, you know, we'll see uh, film productions are slowly starting to come back and slowly starting to like you know, return to production. And uh, mm-hmm. I live in the Atlanta area. So, you know, hopefully there'll be more and more shoots happening again because it was pretty, pretty active for, for a yeah. while, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So hopefully that, and then, yeah, we'll see what happens. Perhaps I'm, I've been toying with uh, working on a book. I've been toying with doing like a Kickstarter for a, a, a documentary, making a documentary that could only be done, I think, some kind of crowdfunding because I don't think a studio is going to want to do it. Uh, so, you know, I just, I just want to stay busy and creative. And again, yeah. it goes back to the world situation. What will it allow? And, uh, and that's kind of what I'm just trying to take my shot at whatever is allowed uh, in, the, in the next months and years to come. Hence the podcast for me, really. You know, I couldn't get out there and interview these people that I've been doing for the last couple of years. Well, I, I definitely suggest to the listeners, in the, in the same way you might pick a director and go through their back catalogue, Look up Charles on IMDb and work your way through his back catalogue because uh, there's some fantastic stuff in there. And so much of it I've revisited. I never thought I'd be re-watching making of documentaries, but I do love your work so much, Charles. So, yeah, thanks for thanks for everything you do and uh, keep on uh, keep on keeping on. <laughs> you too, Jamie. And I thank you for uh, this chat. I'm, I'm long overdue that we actually see each other face to face as we're talking. So that's yeah. good. And uh, <laughs> yeah, let's do it again. Cool. Thanks, Charles. Hope you enjoyed my chat with Charles de Lauzarica there. Do check out his work, as I said there at the end. If you look him up, you'll see that he's been involved with so many great behind-the-scenes documentaries and extra content on DVDs and Blu-ray, and uh, now presumably on streaming as well. Thanks to everyone's support and feedback and comments uh, and ratings on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. And if you're able, please do check out patreon.com forward slash Jamie Benning, where if you are able... You can donate a dollar towards the production of my videos and podcasts. You can also put a monthly cap on that. I'm only ever going to release two things in one month with the podcasts. I'm still hanging on to release my Evor Powell short documentary. Evor also worked with Ridley Scott uh, on some of his early films and is also involved in making a new film. Now I'm hanging on to releasing the documentary because I have permission from Amblin and Universal to use some footage of that new film in the documentary. So as you can imagine, I'm quite keen to get that done, but because of the pandemic and everything else, this film has been delayed, and therefore my documentary has been delayed. Also a big thanks to Michael Hewitt-Brown, composer at NB Music. He's a friend of mine, he lives just up the road from me, and uh, yeah, he just went ahead and created this new theme tune for me. I've never had a theme tune before, it's all rather exciting. Do check out Mike's website, mbmusic, E-M-B-E, music.co.uk. He's done some really interesting work over the years and he's a really talented guy and, yeah, super grateful to you, Mike. Please do continue to support me by retweeting and posting about the podcast. I'm going to continue doing these for the foreseeable future and if you have any ideas for guests, do give me a shout as well. I do have a couple more in mind, but it's always good to get your perspective too. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join me next time.